Okay, here we go. Podcast one. Season one, episode one. (laughs) How about that? (laughs) Uh, Yet to be named. Okay, here we go. Hello there. I'm Donna Britt. Welcome to my podcast, Yet to be Named. We'll get into that in just a second. This is uh, season one, episode one. I love the way Netflix has, you know, S1, E1. So that's that's why I'm doing that. It's kind of weird. Why am I doing a podcast? Well, sometimes um, you get messages. The universe talks to you, right? You know what I'm talking about. And it's easy to ignore the messages sometimes or uh, blow it off or think, oh, wow, that's an interesting coincidence. But as you get older, you start to realize that those are the things you need to pay attention to. And if you don't, um, you usually have a little bit of, mm, I don't want to use the word regret because that's kind of a heavy word, but you'll think back and think, wow, I should have been listening. So uh, being a longtime broadcaster who hasn't been broadcasting lately, at least not in the traditional way. I still host a TV food episode every week, but not on the air every day. Um, But it's still in you. And it seems to me like this podcasting thing is the future. So these friends and different people who have been encouraging me to podcast, I would say, well, so then what am I going to talk about? And they said, well, what you always talk about food and life. It's like, okay, Alrighty, <laughs> I can try to do that. So I thought on this very first podcast, we'd dive right in and we'll, we'll start with the life part and kind of a powerful life part. Don't get freaked out when I say this, don't run away because um, I do have something to say and, it, and it's, not, it's not all dark and negative, but I want to talk about the death part of life because here we are in the summer of 2018 And there's been a lot of that on um, a collective level, Aretha Franklin, John McCain, Burt Reynolds, um, and also on a personal level, uh, a good friend's mother just passed away, um, my own pappy, and I've had a lifelong, um, I guess, relationship with death. I was born just a few years after my grandmother lost her son. Uh, unexpectedly, he was young, and it was an accident. And so I was born in this shadow of death. And because of that, I think I had a lot more anxiety about death and dying as a young child than maybe most children do. Not all children, I think some children have the same experience or similar as to what I had. But anyway, I have had this fear of losing somebody that I love or that I'm close to my entire life. Um, so to actually be so close to someone who was dying and to actually be there when they took their last breath, that was a first time experience for me and a very powerful, profound experience. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm thinking if someone's elderly and they've been suffering and they're sick and you're there when they take their last breath, that's one thing. If someone that you love is unexpectedly uh, gone, um, that's that has to be a completely different thing. So when I'm talking about this, it's just from my my own personal recent experience. So um, there I was in the room, and I was um, honored to be there. I feel blessed to be there. Um, I think I'm still reverberating from being there. Um, another dear friend of mine, Kimmy, who's quite the character and a fellow foodie, who I am sure will be making an appearance or 
three on this podcast as time goes by. She asked me afterwards when I was talking to her about how I, I was there. And she said, well, do you think, what do you, what do you think happens? What happens when we die? Do, you know, do you go to heaven? What happened? And honestly, it's still the great mystery. But I felt, I felt like just all of a sudden as that last breath went out that then he was everywhere. And um, we stayed in that room. We rent a hospice house, which was an incredible place, um, with him for maybe an hour and a half. And, and uh, we talked and laughed and shared. And it, and it wasn't scary at all. It was quite peaceful. So that being said, <laughs> um, it, I'm still processing, obviously. But the reason that I think this is connected to food is because where I'm from, I say I'm from the South. I'm really from Arkansas, which is kind of one of those states that it's not the deep South. It's it's almost the Mid-South. It's just below Missouri, which is considered the Midwest. And I'm from Northern Arkansas, the Ozarks. Honestly, we're hillbillies. But there's some Southern influence in the culture for sure. For example, when somebody dies, when there's a death or a funeral, that equals food. I grew up and when someone left or when someone died, um, that meant there were going to be casseroles and cakes and and things dropped off in corningware with somebody's name taped on the bottom so you knew whose dish was what so you could get it back to them later. And the reason for that. I think, um, was, you know, people were going to be stopping by. And when people stopped by, you wanted to be able to have food for them. And the family was not supposed to have to cook or prepare food. It was all supposed to be there for them. And it was supposed to feed the family for the next week or two so that they wouldn't have to worry about that. So that's how I grew up. And and now, um, you know, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. And I love it. My kids were born out here. And it's my second home, and I've spent as much of my adult life in, in the Pacific Northwest as I have in the South. And, um, but it's different culturally, and I've, I'm learning <laughs> that funerals don't equal <laughs> um, fantastic food out here. As a matter of fact, people show up empty-handed when they come to, to, um, uh, to show their respects and, and, and their condolences, share their condolences. And that was quite shocking to me. Um, as a matter of fact, the only people who, who showed up were, um, you know, my, my friends and, and one, my, my friend Kimmy, who's a Jersey girl who grew up in Atlanta. So she's this weird Southern Jersey girl. Of course, there was lasagna that she brought, which was perfect for this Italian family. And um, my other friend would have brought food, but she's not really a food person. So she brought other gifts, but she knew that that food was supposed to be brought. (laughs) And I say that as if I'm judging people who didn't bring food. And I'm not, I'm just commenting on how the culture is different. And that brings me to the food portion of this particular episode. um, Because I, I think there's such a strong connection between um, grieving and um, funerals and all of that and food. And to prove my point that I'm not just making this up, there is a cookbook that came out exactly 20 years ago this month in September 1998, and a friend gave it to me. Again, my friend Kimmy. Yeah, she's she's recurring, isn't she? This book is called My Mother's Southern Desserts, and it's by James Vilas and his mother, Martha Pearl Vilas. And they also did... keep hitting my microphone. You'd think I'd never worked around one of these. They also authored the book, My Mother's Southern Kitchen. 
And I pulled this book out because there is a chapter which is called, and, and this is for real, and this is a great cookbook. I've made so many desserts out of this book. I love the book. I, I love the, the stories and, and the way that his, uh, he integrates his mom into this book. But the chapter in this cookbook is called Bereavements and Shut-Ins. And here, here are a few lines from the introduction to this chapter. And the very first line is, most non-Southerners are disarmed, if not downright shocked, by the highly social and culinary nature of bereavements that take place throughout the South before and after funerals. Proving my point here. And then there's a quote from his, his mother, Martha Pearl, who says, sugar produces energy, and at times like these, people need something to help their stamina. Because this entire chapter is desserts that you would take to someone who um, was grieving or sick and not feeling well. And um, there are also savory dishes that are, are brought to your home, but um, a lot of sweets. And um, she goes on to say, Martha Pearl, that the whole idea is that we are not so much mourning the deceased as celebrating a good life. And what better way than sharing the same beautiful food we know that person would have enjoyed? So you bake or bring something that you know that person loved. For example, for Pappy's um, little uh, celebration that we had after he passed, he loved my lemon bars, so I made Pappy's lemon bars. I also renamed my recipe to Pappy's lemon bars. Some of the recipes that are in this particular chapter in this book, uh, Divine Grace Coconut Custard Pie, Bereavement Chocolate Bread Pudding, um, Spicy Molasses Cookies, and Shut-In Ginger Snaps. And there are more. And I also thought it was interesting when I thought of pulling this book out because I wanted to talk about the book in the chapter. I thought, I wonder if you can still get this book. Well, of course, I Googled it. And you can on Amazon, My Mother's Southern Desserts. And then I was thinking, because there's a picture on the front of, of James and his mother, Martha Pearl, uh, sitting at this dining room table with a buffet behind them and there are desserts everywhere. And I'm looking at the picture and I'm thinking like, James was probably in his you know, 50s or 60s when they wrote this book. I, I wonder how he's doing. And then lo and behold, I Googled that and I found out that he actually passed away this year, August 18th, which would have been my dad's 77th birthday, something like that. He died three years ago. And um, I thought, oh, my gosh, what an interesting coincidence that I want to talk about what I'm talking about today. And um, this is the book I chose, and this is the author of the book, and he he just passed away. And in case you don't know who he is, hang on a second, because I've got to be able to get where I can see what I want to tell you here. And my microphone's as close to my computer as it can be right now. But um, James Vilas was the author of so many cookbooks, and he was an authority, a respected authority on American cuisine. He's from Charlotte, North Carolina, and he was the food and wine editor of Town and Country for 27 years. He also wrote articles that appeared in Bon Appetit, Gourmet, Esquire, and um, he won the James Beard Journalism Award in 2000 for his article, PC and Proud of It for Gourmet, and he was twice nominated for the James Beard Book Award. And he was listed in Who's Who of American Food and Wine, and uh, so on and so on. So um, there you go. Just wanted to honor him for a second and talk about him. And if you have not checked out his cookbooks ever before, you ought to do that because they're good. You know, I love his writing. And here's the thing. I think people still, you can look up a recipe easily anywhere, anytime, on your phone, on your iPad, on your computer. You can go to Pinterest. You can, whatever you want to cook. 
it's at your fingertips as far as a recipe. So why do people still like cookbooks? Why do they still print cookbooks? I get asked that question all the time. And I think the reason is because it's never just about the recipe. You know, a cookbook, if it's a good one, <laughs> there, there, there are stories and anecdotes and um, something behind the recipes that make it special, along with pictures and et cetera. So I still love cookbooks. I'm still collecting them. And um, I think if you, if you want to feel closer to your food, <laughs> or let's say you're, you're somebody new and you're thinking like, whatever, don't, who cares? I'm just going to, you know, look up my recipes, but just try it sometime, you know, go walk into a bookstore or browse online if that's how you do your shopping and, and think, you know, what, what am I interested in? Maybe you're interested in baking cakes or Southwestern cuisine or whatever, and, and try out a cookbook, you know, just get one. You can always give it away if you don't like it or whatever. Take it to the, the goodwill. Um, and just see how it makes you feel when you're reading it and touching it and looking at it. And um, even if you, I have some cookbooks, I don't think I've ever cooked anything out of them. But I still love the book because of, of, of the, the storytelling and the way they put it together. Okay, but back to bereavements, funerals, food, connection. And I told you I made my lemon bars. But another another favorite recipe of mine that, that I would um, take to somebody who was um, grieving would be um, my amazing coconut cake. And there's a little bit of a story behind coconut cake. I used to not ever bake cakes. I liked pies and... Um, um, other kinds of desserts, cookies, quick breads, yeast breads. I just wasn't a cake baker because I wasn't really a cake eater. Um, I never really had a cake that I thought, oh my gosh, that's, that's so good. I have to have more of it. It was something I could typically walk away from. But I, uh, when I was living in Nashville a number of years ago, and I went to some sort of, it seems like it was a fall party celebration at um, this family's house. My, my kids and their kids were in school together. And there was this coconut cake. And I do have a thing for coconut. I love coconut. If it's got coconut, I'm going to eat it. And um, I, for some reason, took a bite of this cake. And I was blown away. <laughs> it was so coconutty and so moist. And it was sweet, but it was, it was just, it wasn't like that Mm, fakey sweet like you know when you buy a big sheet cake at Costco or something and it's you know everybody goes oh it's so good well yeah but it's got that mm, 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 intense sweet especially the frosting this was an amazing cake and I thought okay I'm gonna see if my friend will share her recipe um, because sometimes people do and sometimes people don't and she was willing to share her recipe but she had a story behind it she goes this is the recipe from the 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 shoebox cafe and I thought Oh, okay, because I wasn't sure what that was or where that was. And she gave me this recipe. And, and some of it was a little indecipherable. So over the years, I've had to kind of figure it out. But I also want to tell you a little bit about the Shoebox Cafe. It was in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. It closed in 2006, unfortunately, it sounds like. And they were famous for their coconut cake. And I'm able, I was able to find their recipe. And it is pretty much the same recipe. There's just a couple little things. The frosting seems a little different, et cetera. But it um, pretty much the same recipe. So my amazing coconut cake recipe, which I will also credit to the Shoebox Cafe in Cedar Grove, New Jersey, 
<laughs> because I think at least they were the inspiration if it's not their exact recipe. I'll be sharing that at DonnaBrickCooks.com and you can um, come get the recipe because I think if I say it all out loud to you now, you'll go, what is she talking about? But there are some things that I want to point out about the recipe so that when you go to get it and you go to bake this cake, because you're going to do it, then you, I want you to be aware of some things. Uh, first of all, this is what I've learned about cake baking. Because since this coconut cake, I got into cakes. And I'm not like a fancy cake baker. Like you probably don't want to have me do your fancy wedding cake or whatever because I'm I'm not that person. But as far as a good home-style moist cake, um, I'm pretty good. I'm just saying. I'm not really bragging. I have a hard time bragging. But I, I my cakes are pretty good. Every once in a while, I screw up. But here are some key things that I've learned on my own the hard way, and I want to share. You need to have your ingredients at room temperature. I'm not kidding. If you know you're going to bake a cake, because a cake is something you really don't do at the last minute, at least not a layer cake or a bigger cake, um, you want to get your eggs out, your milk out, your butter out, unless the butter is supposed to be you know, cold when you mix it in, but typically in a cake it isn't. Um, get all your ingredients out. Let them sit on the counter for an hour or so just to get room temperature and you're not going to get sick or anything like that I promise I do have my food handlers license and I'm, I'm telling you the truth the other thing is when you pour your cake into your pans that you're using whatever they are um, you want to <laughs> you do want to make sure the batter's in there evenly which means that you're going to spread it and you're also going to maybe grab your pans on each side and, and tap it on the counter you've seen people do this and you're like what 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 why are they doing that? Well, it's to try to get your batter even because if your cake bakes unevenly, which they do all the time because of different things, this is why cake baking is hard if you ask me, um, then it's there uneven and if you're wanting to do a lay layer cake and frost it, you've got to you know, cut it and try to make it even or let it be crooked, which I often do because I think it's not always the way it looks. It's also, it's really the way it tastes. But people like a pretty cake. The other thing that I learned um, that I do with my coconut cake that I don't think is in the shoebox cafe recipe, and I do it with pretty much all of my layer cakes for sure, and that is while the cake is baking, I make a simple syrup. And yeah, it's a simple syrup just as if you were making cocktails. It's just equal parts sugar and water. And you just uh, heat that in a saucepan. And usually for me, I'll just use, I don't know, a quarter or half cup sugar, a quarter, half cup water. Sometimes I'll make more because then I may use the simple syrup for something else, like hummingbird food or or some kind of cocktail or another round of cake baking because it'll keep for a while in your fridge. But you, you mix up the simple syrup and you just stir the sugar and water together until the sugar dissolves and you set it aside. When you pull the cake out of the oven, you want to immediately get a toothpick, poke holes all over it. Get a brush, a pastry brush, you know, or some sort of clean little paintbrush, whatever, something that's clean. Um, and you want to brush simple syrup over the top of each of the cake layers. And, and the, the syrup will go down into the holes that you've poked. So not a million holes, but, you know, like 10 holes or something. You know, just, just poke a few holes all around. The idea is the simple syrup soaks down. Now, you don't use that much simple syrup. Don't think you have to use the entire cup of simple syrup. You just brush it on. You put a nice layer brush on. And what happens is that simple syrup goes down into those holes as the cake is cooling. And it it, it really makes your cake extra moist. It really does, I swear. <laughs> and not too sweet. Um, so there's that. Then for this particular cake, this coconut cake, I let 
the the layers cool in the pan. You don't always do that for a cake, but for this cake, I, I do that. Like I may take a knife and run around the edges after five or 10 minutes of cooling, but let it cool, let it sit in there. Um, and, and, and before you, you, you topple it out. And speaking of that, let's talk about preparing your pans. Another reason why I used to never bake cakes is because they always stuck. And until I figured out the best way to prep a pan, you smear it with so much butter, it's crazy. And then you shake a little flour in your pan and you, you kind of shake your pan around. It's kind of messy. You might want to do it over a sink or a big trash can or a big cutting board. So you, you put flour in it, okay? So you've, you've, that's called greasing and flouring your pan. And I like to do it with butter, butter and flour. And then I still will cut um, a piece of wax paper or parchment paper and put down in the bottom only of the pan, not the sides, but just the bottom of the pan. And that parchment paper will keep your cake from sticking for sure. But I'll do the butter and the flour too, just to be extra, extra sure that my cake won't stick. So once the cake is cooled and you dump them out, the other thing I'm going to say, I think that, and professional cake bakers do this and they know what they're doing. I'm a hack, but I do bake cakes. I'm just going to say that. Um, you want you want to cool your layers completely. Let them cool completely there on a wire rack so that they air out correctly and cool down correctly. And once they're totally cool, um, you can do a couple of things. You can go ahead and frost them if you want, or you can put them in the refrigerator. Let them cool down in there even more, get a little firm. And sometimes it's easier to frost a cake once they're cooled down. What you can do too is you can do what they call a crumb coat. So you can smear a little bit of your frosting on each layer. You don't want to get a thick bunch, just a little bit, just smear it around on your layer. And then you put that in your refrigerator and you cool it down completely. That's your crumb coat. And then you bring it out and you finish frosting the cake. So um, I suggest that if you love coconut, and you like cakes that sometimes you try this amazing coconut cake and the recipe will be online and easy for you to access and download and you can even see pictures (laughs) so um check it out at uh donnabrickcooks.com and um my blog will be there too where i'll also be writing about what we just talked about you know because some people are readers some people process information in an auditory way and they listen So whatever works for you. So again, thank you very much for um, hanging out with me. And I look forward to um, season one, episode two coming soon.